poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Hello there, my friend. Coach Brad here, and I want to welcome you back for another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. Today's guest on the show is the author of The Pursuit of Poker Success and the president and editor-in-chief of Pocket Fives, Lance Bradley. Lance's story is about to, quite frankly, blow your mind. His career has taken him from poker journalist to being in charge of one of the largest poker platforms in the world, smack dab in the middle of the poker boom, to calling his own number at the WSOP by working excruciatingly long days on his own dime. After our recording wrapped up, Lance reached out to me privately and told me he really enjoyed our conversation because he got the chance to speak about some things he's never had the opportunity to go into great detail about, which, as you might imagine, put me right on cloud nine. The man is a professional storyteller whose immersion in the poker world means he has seen and experienced way more than your average bear, and I'm genuinely honored to share those stories with you today. In our conversation, you're going to learn the surprising reason Lance decided he wanted to become a journalist while he was in grade school, how Lance was almost the face of ultimate bet at a time when, well, that's not a thing anybody in the poker world would want to be. The real story behind the selling and eventual fall of Bluff Magazine, and much, much more. And before you dive into my conversation with Lance Bradley, I just wanted to let you know that today's interview is brought to you by Poker with Presence. If you want to get in the zone and play your best when you need it the most, visit PokerWithPresence.com and hop on Jason Sue's email newsletter. So without any further ado, I bring to you author, podcaster, and unlikely builder of a massively successful poker platform, Lance Bradley. Lance. Good morning, my friend. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, man. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It's, it's a rare opportunity that I get to speak with a fellow ATLian like yourself. Uh, let's, uh, let, I mean, I, I live in Atlanta now. Uh, it's definitely home, but I, I don't think uh, true Atlanteans would describe me as an Atlantean. I'm a Canadian that got uh, transplanted here. So, How long have you been here in Atlanta? Seven and a half years now. That's long enough. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think, you know, you're, you're, you're in Atlantan now just by, it's like common law marriage, right? You've been here seven years, you're married. You're, is, that, you're, is, you're that the, is that where the line is? is That's the line. Years? Yeah. Okay. Now, yeah now, I mean, I say y'all, I like barbecue. <laughs> do you wear masks in public? I do. Yeah. Most everybody in Atlanta does actually. Now, yeah. The, the first couple of months was an interesting experience being like the only guy at a Walmart wearing a mask. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's touch and go, but uh, I really love our mayor, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms. I think she's the fucking nuts. I'm very grateful to have her as uh, one of the leaders where we live. I don't think the audience or the listener right now is 
um, super interested in Keisha Lance Bottoms, though. So let's uh, <laughs> let's segue <clears throat> segue into the stuff that matters uh, to the listener and talk about your world, you know, your journey through a world of cards and how did that start? What year was it? Um, what was your life like before you dove into the world of cards? Uh, I mean, it, it's kind of a, a complicated question because I've been in the gaming industry since 2001 when I started with Bodog, but my love of poker actually predates that. Uh, up in Canada on TSN, they would air WSOP reruns at like all hours of the night. Uh, and I would be fully in tune in that um, long what, what, before. What, what time span was that? Like what years did TSN start? Uh, I mean, I got into it in the late 90s. Uh, there were some British shows, British poker shows that build up airtime and WSP reruns would fill up some airtime. Um, so yeah, late 90s was when it sort of started to really bubble for me. Played with friends, but we weren't playing Hold'em, obviously. We were playing sort of any game we could, we could figure out. A lot of stud. Um, and then, you know, Rounders came out and that was uh, like handy to me. I remember watching it in the movie theater and just being absolutely in love with the storyline from start to finish. And uh, like no one else really, you know, you know, Rounders didn't do great at the box office and like a lot of my friends weren't into it or seeing it. So it sort of sat there perfectly for a little bit and then uh, just started playing locally in some local casinos in the Vancouver area. And then Moneymaker happened all this while I was uh, at Bodog. So it was uh, an interesting time for sure in terms of my gambling history. Right. And so to go back, you know, you watched Rounders, you had this positive association with poker. Have you always loved games? Is that something you're drawn to? And what was the appeal? Yeah, my story is going to sound pretty familiar to a lot of uh, your listeners in terms of the origin story. When I was a kid, I loved card games. My parents would play bridge uh, once a week when I was really young. And so I was exposed to it. I didn't understand the game at all, but I got to see the, the camaraderie at the table and little bit of trash talks and drinks being passed around and whatnot. Um, and then as I got older, you know, my grandparents were all into card games, whether it was uh, cribbage or rummy. I played a lot of rummy with my grandmother over the summers when I was really young. And I just always was into uh, being able to, to think there was a way to outsmart my opponent at the game we're playing, as opposed to um, something where you're just rolling some dice and hoping for a six or whatever it is. Right. Yeah, so candy I was always into the games like that. For sure. Uh, and me as well. And I think that's a lot of folks' history with poker is just loving the psychological element of it, the battle of wits, trying to outsmart, outthink, and outplay your opponent, which I'm pretty sure that's a tagline for Survivor. But um, <laughs> yeah, very familiar. And what, what was your original, you know, what were you aspiring to be in your professional life as it was leading up to this love of poker. And then how did you get involved with Bodog? Yeah. So they, they all sort of roll into one. I was uh, in third grade when I decided I wanted to be a writer. How, why, what happened? Uh, oh, actually second grade. I was second grade and it was, it, it's a silly story, but you know, it was one of those ones where you had to write a short story and turn it in and all the kids turned in their notebooks and the teacher did something like, um, oh, there was one that was really good and I wanted to read it to the class and she read my story. And she said to me, I remember sitting in class hearing her say this, like, you're a good writer. You should do this. And instantly, like, I went home and I was like, I'm going to be an author. Wow. My parents were like, uh, okay, that's out of nowhere. My dad was an accountant. My mom worked at a bank. 
an author was not sort of in the in their side of what they figured I would end up being. Um, you know, and growing up uh, through junior high and high school, I journalism classes as much as I could, writing classes as much as I could, and then. Uh, I was actually in journalism school in Vancouver, and I saw an ad in the newspaper, of all things, uh, where they were looking for somebody with a sports interest. And I was, my goal was to be, at that point, was to be a sports writer. And they were looking for someone with sports interest who understood gambling and had a customer service background. And of course, I had like retail experience and worked in movie theaters and stuff in high school. So uh, I had the, the, the customer service experience. And I applied and walked in, and it just so happened that the, the guy running the company uh, went to the same high school that I did. He was uh, 10 years ahead of me. So it was one of those interviews where like we just sat around and shot the shit for 30 minutes and then he offered me the job. Uh, there was no like actual discussion of my qualifications. It was just a, uh, yeah, we're, we're from the same hood. So you're, you're good here. Uh, and then I, I ended up at Bodog for five years. I started in customer service and uh, eventually ran customer service. And then I ran their PR department. Uh, and then the poker room happened, right? Basically as I was, uh, the, the PR stuff was taking off. And they said, hey, uh, you're like the one guy in the company who really likes poker. Do you want to run the, the business channel? And I was like, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Party was crushing at the time and they were everywhere. World Poker Tour was just really starting to take off. And I was like, okay, sure, let's do this. And, you know, it was uh, go out, find some software, uh, build a customer support team, build a marketing team, make the product better. Let's figure out a way to, to, to launch in the space in a big way. And Bodog was a uh, still is, but at the time they were a major player in the sports betting side. And we knew we had a, like a massive player database to market to and poker interest was everywhere. We launched right on top of NFL season the year that we launched. So there was massive traffic already on the site. And I think uh, there was a site back then called poker pulse, which did then what poker scout does now tracking online poker site traffic. And I think we debuted at number six in the world. Wow. Um, and it was, uh, that was a lot of fun. I mean, the, the people I worked with, through that uh, two and a half year experience running the, the business, I'm still in touch with now. And, uh, you know, uh, we reminisce about the, the good old days a little bit, but because uh, it was a crazy time to be in poker. I mean, um, yeah, like nowadays, the, the, the listener may not realize that like number six is like, OK, so somebody started a new poker platform right back then. There was a lot of competition yeah. and number six was like a really big deal because there were literally hundreds and hundreds of poker platforms all competing and trying to make it. And we were a standalone too. We weren't a, the big thing then was networks. Even party poker was a, a network of skins. Um, and so we were competing against, you know, uh, party pokers skins and a few other ones that were really big. And it was, uh, you know, we, we climbed into like five or four uh, eventually they've gone in a very different direction with their poker product than the rest of the market. And I don't know where they officially sit these days, but they're, they're still pretty strong. And uh, I just look back at those days as like, I, one, I learned an absolute uh, ton. Every day was a learning experience. The people I worked for were, were fantastic to work for. So it was, it seems uh, like a lot of responsibility. Did you, did you have biz, business background? I mean, I'm just thinking about like this journal journalism guy who's like taking on this massive, massive project, like, Holy shit. Yeah, when, when they first came to me, they figured it would be uh, probably, if I'm being honest, one 20th of what it ended up being in terms of the revenue for the company. Um, and then as we got into it, we recognized what the opportunity was and they were like, okay, let's just go. We've got, uh, all, you have all the muscle you need, whatever you need to make this work, go. Um, and my boss at the time, his name was Rob Gillespie. Uh, he was so supportive. He's the guy that interviewed me. Uh, for the first job, but uh, he was so supportive and really, uh, I mean, I learned so much from him in terms of how to run a business channel. And it was, 
I don't want to say it was easy because it was a lot of hard work and long hours, uh, seven days a week for a couple of years there. But um, it was it was challenging. It was fun. I learned a lot. But I wouldn't say that it was like that it that I didn't hate a single day of working there um, because it was just so much fun to come in and like there was not a lot of rules and it was you know what do you think is going to work why do you think it's going to work let's do that go and that was a lot of fun that's a that's a freedom that uh, I think I was 26 27 oh wow yeah uh, it was it was just like okay yeah let's uh let's do this yeah that's uh whew, I can't even imagine I'm 36 and like being handed that sort of responsibility, but I guess you don't know what you don't know. Right. And they didn't expect it to be a massive revenue stream. And then once it got going, everybody was like, Holy shit. Um, you know, our journalism guy is running the poker operation. Like (laughs) he was running, writing press releases. And now he's, he's yeah, Yeah, exactly. I I do want to go back for a second because, uh, I want to go back to second grade and the story that you wrote, because I have, an actual similar experience. And I just want to ask, like, how did you feel? Like, because obviously as your teacher chose your story to read in front of the class, like, what were you thinking? How were you feeling in that moment? Uh, when she said it was going to be mine, of course, I was pretty nervous. But then, I mean, this was a teacher that I was like a huge fan of already. And then when she said afterwards, you know, I should be a writer, that was a pretty good feeling for a kid that's uh, seven or eight years old to be told, like, you're, you're good enough to do this. And if, you know, um, I've got a young daughter now and you, you see how uh, a little bit of, of reassurance at this age uh, changes their, their, their behavior and their trajectory a little bit. And I can certainly see now exactly what that moment must've looked like for, uh, for her and for my parents in terms of, you know, my, my confidence level probably changed quite a bit going from being nervous about having it read to uh, probably having a bit of a chip on my shoulder about my writing ability at seven. <laughs> yeah. And have you reached out to this teacher? Does she even know the influence? I've tried to track her down over the years. Uh, she was a, a miss at the time. Uh, and that was uh, 83. So I imagine uh, things have changed quite a bit. The school doesn't exist anymore. So it was, I haven't been able to track her down. I've got a few teachers like that along the way that I've, I've gone back and, and talked to, mainly the uh, the journalism teachers that I had in, in junior high and high school. But I've never been able to find Miss Stevens from Viscount Alexander Elementary. Well, Miss Stevens, or if anybody knows Miss Stevens, send them Lance's, send her Lance's direction. Uh, when I was in the tenth grade, I wrote a short story and hadn't really written very much uh, up to that point in time. And I, I do remember turning it in, and my teacher kind of pulling me to the side and saying, "Like yours was really good, Brad. Like you could, you know, you could really do something with this." like kind of singling me out and having that conversation. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And I think that, yeah, it's just, it's had an influence into how I think about my writing ability ever since that moment from like having no opinion to being like, oh, wow, maybe I actually have some talent and I can do something that will resonate and make an impact in people's lives. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, that reassuring that you're, you know, you've got a a skill set that is valued. That's, that means a lot to, I think at any age, that means a lot, right? Yep. Especially from people that you trust. And it sounds like, you know, you trusted your second grade teacher implicitly. And so whenever you trust somebody in that way, you allow them to give you feedback and you accept the feedback as the truth because you think, you know, they have your best interest in mind, right? right? 
your parents, you know, your parents can go one way or the other because you know that they're biased. Like, you yeah. know that, like, they're even supposed to say it. Yeah. Even a seven year old knows that, like, their parent is biased and they're capable of blowing smoke up their ass and, you know, all these things. But when you hear it from an outside trusted source, that, that really matters, um, really matters to us. And so you go from like the Bodog Poker Room manager. And then you went to Bluff Media. Could you talk about that transition? How did that happen? Yeah, so that's actually uh, interesting. I left Bodog uh, right before Jamie Gold won the, the main event, actually, um, wearing Bodog gear, uh, which was like, if you, if you look back at our, our marketing efforts, the first couple of years we were up and running, we, were, we, we leveraged as much as we could uh, the WSOP brand, uh, lots of qualifiers, trying to get uh, satellite people inside so that we could have a, a deep run from somebody. Uh, but I left that summer and really didn't know what was next. But why'd you leave? Uh, we had a sort of a, a disagreement over the direction of the, the product. And uh, maybe they were right. Maybe they weren't. But uh, it was just it was it was really no longer a fit. Um, and I, I didn't leave with any uh, hard feelings towards, you know, the people that hired me and the people I worked with. Uh, I missed my team dearly. And I think uh, I think they did. They missed me a little bit, too. But, um, you know, mutual. Uh, parting of ways that was uh, pushed along by them. I didn't want to leave, but uh, when it was brought up, I was like, okay, let's, uh, let's do this. I got a decent uh, handshake on the way out the door that allowed me to, you know, take some time to myself rather than having to, to jump out and, and find something. Uh, and then it was a matter of like, okay, what's next? Uh, poker was booming still. Um, and then one day that summer UIGA passed and I had actually interviewed for a job with this uh, online poker room called Ultimate Bet. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, who who for, could remember Ultimate Bet? That's like the platform that I put almost all my volume in at the time. Right. A lot of people did. Uh, and they were looking for a Lee Jones-esque poker room manager. And uh, one of the gaming recruiters had put us in touch. And for, and we for those, two- I, I want to stop for a second. Yeah. For those that don't know, like, Lee Jones was the poker manager of stars and would come in and talk to people at final tables and like negotiate all the deals that they were running. So he was like a very visible manager of the, the poker room on stars. Yeah. And very much a, like a public face for the product. Um, and that was what Alphabet was looking for. This was late July that year, early August. And I did a couple of interviews with them. It got to the point of they're like, okay, so the job is in either Toronto or London uh, ultimately, it'll be up to whoever we hire. Uh, where would you want to move if it was up to you? And I could tell that like an offer was probably coming. Uh, and then woke up to the news that UIGA had happened and stopped hearing from them. Really? They ghosted uh, you? I mean, it, that's everybody in the industry locked up at that point. Uh, the, the future of the U.S. market was in question. And whether you were, you know, party left what was ultimate bet going to do? What was stars going to do? Uh, was federal regulation going to happen before the end of the year that would put online poker into the, uh, to the main space. And ultimately uh, I think I look back on UIGA as being a real bitch at the time, uh, but it probably saved me a, a little bit. Um, I don't think being the public face of ultimate bet would have been good for the career. <laughs> uh, seeing how that turned out. I'm not trying to be results oriented, but I'm going to be results oriented on this one and say, I really, uh, I got lucky there. Yeah. I, I, I mean, assuming that the salary was uh, within range, I would have uh, jumped at the opportunity to manage a, what was then a top five online poker room. 
and um, not knowing exactly what was happening behind the scenes, of course. Yeah, and filling in the gaps at, at Ultimate Bet, the Russ Hamilton debacle was going on where he was god moding, and I think they ended up reimbursing like sixty or seventy million dollars worth of players' funds to the players. It was like it was a scandal that I don't know how it's not bigger than it is. I, it's almost like the greatest crime that I, I can't, I can't even think of a more lucrative crime that somebody has pulled off and they're just like chilling out with all the, all of their ill gotten gains in the world right now. Yeah. Uh, a surprising outcome is that, that Russ never faced any consequences whatsoever. Other None. than being harassed in a parking lot a couple of times. Well, yeah. Who, who cares? He still plays oh. poker apparently. Like he's, he's like, has no shame. Um, for and a story that was just uncovered by the poker community, uh, by two plus two, I believe, who are aggregating the data and looking at it and said, like, oh, this dude, there's just no chance that this is real. Like, what's happening? And you know, basically had to force Ultimate Bet's hand because Ultimate Bet didn't want, really want to take action um, because obviously there's some serious consequences. It cost them about sixty or seventy million dollars and did tons of damage to their brand. But yeah, I can't imagine having to navigate being the public face that's got to navigate through all that. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't be talking now. I know that. <laughs> why, why not? You just... uh, I don't think I would be uh, a welcome in the industry. If I'm being honest, I don't think anybody that worked for ultimate bet in any manner at that point should be welcome. In the industry. Really? If they, I mean, if, if you're the public face of a company that ends up defrauding uh, the poker community of a hundred million dollars or whatever it ended up being, uh, yeah, you're not going to be welcome back. What about Phil Helmuth? He's he he he's their guy. Do you not consider him as working for Ultimate Bet? I mean, his checks came from Ultimate Bet, but I don't think he was involved in operations as much as uh, people want to think. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I always got the impression that he was the put the patch on, put the hat on, um, do the commercials type thing. But uh, I think had it. If I had been involved in day-to-day operations with the company, as the role would have required, that's a, I think that's a little bit different than the ambassadorship. Yeah, you, you're the you're the messenger that's going to get just eviscerated yeah. in in the poker community. I, I know that like there were some tapes that came out after the fact, maybe in like 2013 or 14, with executives discussing Annie Duke and saying that Annie Duke had used the God Mode account at one time, and like it, it, it just is a thing that sticks to your reputation in the world of poker. And uh, I actually, I I like Phil Helmuth. He's been on this show and um, you know, I hope that, I I hope that, you know, he was staying in his lane and he was doing the promotions had no, you know, I I think he probably left too late. I think by the time the allegations were out, he was still around a little bit. I think that's where you can find fault in these guys. If if you know that uh, the company is, uh, or have reasonable doubt that there's there's something shady going on and you're still collecting those checks, I think that's problematic. It is. It is for sure. But, you know, that's a long time ago, actually. Like 14, 15, 14 years ago, something insane like that. Yeah, that feels like a lifetime ago. I mean, we're coming up on 10 years of, of Black Friday, which is uh, crazy to think, really. Um, yeah, we're going to be on the ground soon, Lance. It's <laughs> Time is going by real <laughs> fast. Like, Postle's the puzzle thing has been going on for like a year already. And I, I do want to ask your opinion on that, but I want to stick with your story right now. Yeah. And um, so UIGEA, UB ghost you, then what? Uh, I ended up getting, a, or uh, 
getting an interview with uh, Poker Listings, uh, which was based in Vancouver at the time. And they had this ad up for a news editor. They're looking for someone with poker knowledge, poker background, and a and journalism uh, experience. And I was like, this is right up my alley. This is absolutely perfect. Uh, I remember seeing the, the ad like late at night on, I think, monster.com. And uh, I went and I did the interview with the recruiter that was handling it. And it was one of those ones, again, where I left the interview like, okay, I absolutely smashed that interview. I'm probably going to get, a, get an offer here. Uh, and then they, they ghosted me. Really? I was like, this is really weird. And finally, I got uh, frustrated. And I actually just phoned the recruiter and I was like, what the hell? And they're like, yeah, they've just decided to, to you're not a candidate they'd like to consider. And maybe you just out, maybe <laughs> I'm trying to figure out exactly how much of this I want to tell, but it turns out that somebody at Bodog had told them I had a non-compete that would have kept me from working for them, which wasn't the case. Uh, I, part of my exit allowed me to uh, not have the non-compete enforced. Yeah. But this was uh, somebody that had connections at poker listings through our affiliate department and didn't like me and found out that I was interviewing for it and, um, torpedoed it. it yeah basically torpedoed it and it, it actually it turned out to be a, another blessing for me because it pissed me off uh to the point where i was like uh, the, the reason that the official reason i was given was that i didn't have uh, enough writing experience which was kind of laughable at the time considering just how much content i produced at bodog plus uh some mainstream journalism work i'd done while in journalism school so uh, i launched the pokerbiz.com which uh was a an industry insiders blog of sorts i guess covered basically whatever I felt like. And that was uh, good for, I want to say a year and a half. Uh, in reality, it took off at the World Series, uh, Jerry Yang's World Series. I basically, without any real ad revenue to live off of other than a, a few uh, small deals, uh, went to Las Vegas for the duration of the World Series of Poker uh, and covered it daily and was there from... Uh, every morning's shuffle up and deal until they bagged for the night. Completely exhausting, but I knew I was sort of investing in uh, an opportunity to, to showcase myself a little bit and get the job that I really wanted, which at that point was I just wanted someone to pay me to write about poker. And I lived for the first bit with the guys from Bluff Magazine. Uh, it turns out one of the founders of Bluff was uh, someone that I knew from my Bodog days. He was running a uh, software company out of Atlanta, uh, and at that, that time was trying to pitch us poker software for Bodog to use. And we got to know each other a little bit. And so basically ended up just like crashing at their WSOP house for the summer and got to know those guys a little bit and wrote my ass off, uh, and was living off of, you know, a $5 a day meal budget. And <laughs> like it was, it was a grind. I look back on it with, with fond memories now, but I remember in the moment calling my wife on a daily basis being like, this is. Uh, this is great. I'm having fun, but it's a lot harder than I thought it would be because the hours are just so long and I'm doing everything I can to like meet with people and put myself out there a little bit. And I remember just being really, really uh, exhausted when I got home um, in late July, whatever it was. Yeah. Your, your fuel is just anger, piss and vinegar. You're just going to make it through because of getting torpedoed, right? You're carving your own path to where it's like yeah. undeniable. Um, I mean, by that point, I was over the fact that it had been torpedoed. And I was really just trying to uh, put myself out there to the point where somebody was going to notice that I had talent. Yeah, uh, that, stories and that's uh, the point is like you're making your own path. You're not going to go through these normal channels where they could be sabotaged and something can fall apart. That's beyond your control. Like you're just making it happen. 
Yeah, I felt like that was the only sort of option I had given uh, sort of the state of the industry at the time and whatnot. And then uh, later that year, a, a local Vancouver gaming company called BetEd, which was uh, basically trying to be the second version of Bodog, uh, called me up and said, hey, we, wanna, we want you to come run our, our poker room. Um, it's tiny. It's on a network. Uh, what do you think? And I was like, great. I'm chomping at the bit. Let's go. And it was uh, underfunded and uh, poorly managed from the top down. They were, they were really trying hard. They're two smart guys, but they just didn't have the, the capital to really compete in that space. Uh, and so I ended up um, talking to the guys at Bluff at one point, And they're like, hey, I think we're going to have an opening here for an editor. Are you interested? And I, I couldn't get yes out of my mouth quick enough. <laughs> yeah. They're like, yeah, you'll, just, you'll work from home. Uh, and it turned out like the salary was going to be double what I was making at BedEd. <laughs> which I was like, let's, let's go for it. Let's do it. And uh, I wasn't making a lot of better, but it was, a, it was a good opportunity. It was managing editor and they basically needed, they, they had the magazine and they had Matt Parvis as the editor in chief running that. And he was doing a great job, but they wanted somebody to take over the digital side and really give them a, a website presence uh, and do daily news and really cover some things that, you know, they, they weren't covering at that point. There was no uh, bluffmagazine.com at the time was basically just, uh, click here to subscribe to Bluff Magazine and get 12 issues in your mailbox throughout the year. It was very, very old school. Uh, and so I was giving carte blanche to really sort of do what I wanted with the, the news coverage of poker. So again, like I landed in a great opportunity that I think I worked uh, pretty hard to get. And it turned into um, a couple years later, uh, Parvis left to go to poker news. And they said, do you want to run the magazine as well as the digital? And I was like, yeah, let's go. Um, and I ended up being at Bluff for, seven years, uh, seven and a half years, I guess, including a move to Atlanta where I am now. Uh, they got bought by Churchill Downs. And one of the first things Churchill Downs said was, how do you feel about Atlanta? And, you know, we explored the opportunity and just wanted to, uh, to try something different. And Atlanta was such a great fit for my family at the time. And what, hap- what ultimately ended up happening to Bluff Magazine? Because Bluff Magazine is not a thing anymore, right? Was it a huh. Black Friday victim? No, uh, I mean, Black Friday wasn't great, but what was sort of the, the, the end of Bluff was the acquisition by Churchill Downs. They were acquiring Bluff to be a, uh, a conduit for them to launch an online poker product in a federally regulated United States market. And they were working off some knowledge they had or believed they had that federal regulation was going to be a thing. Uh, not there was a chance it was going to be a thing, but uh, it's coming. Coming. Uh, and, and that they had the votes to pass it. Um, that never came to fruition. Uh, state by state started coming up and we were working there. But um, and in the in the background, uh, I was also working on Churchill Downs' online poker product. Uh, they were wanting that to be you know, ready the second that they could launch in any given state. And so, you know, we went through that process a little bit in the background. And then it, it became clear that uh, they had invested in the wrong online poker platform. Uh, it was an untested, unused product. And despite hiring a team of developers to try and make it better, states weren't coming on fast enough and they just decided to pull the plug on the entire project. Um, and it was, uh, they let us cover the main event um, before telling us. I remember I was in the car with three of my staff, four of my staff on our way from Aria where we were staying to the Rio to interview the November nine. Uh, they were in there. This was 12 hours after the final table was determined. And uh, my phone rang and it was a Kentucky number. 
and I knew who it was, but I didn't answer it. Got to the Rio. They all went in and do their interviews. And I hung out outside the the suites there and called back. And I mean, I knew what I knew why they were calling. Well, how'd you know? Just instinct. I mean, this wasn't somebody that I had regular communication with. Uh, maybe once a month we would have a, a catch up call. Uh, for them to call me out of the blue in that moment, I knew this was not uh, good. This wasn't good. Uh, and basically, he said, "You know, yeah, we're we're pulling the plug. We fought hard. You guys did great content, but." Uh, we're just going to be exiting poker, it seems. Uh, so, you know, walked back into the November 9 interviews and uh, bluffed my way through an hour of interviewing these guys, knowing there was no outlet to publish it. And then uh, drove back to Ari with the guys and called a meeting an hour later, got a chance to compose myself and said, uh, and got to deliver that news to those guys. And those were guys that, you know, like I'd worked those long hours with and uh, spent a lot of time getting to know in Atlanta and like had gone to, uh, Put the, the work boots on and gone to work with and I love those guys and I love the work we did but uh, that was uh, one of the most unenjoyable days of my uh, career was having to tell those guys that the flight home was the last time that we would be uh, a, a group again. Yeah, before boot camp I had been playing for maybe 15 years somewhat seriously always trying to get better jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site kind of feeling a little bit lost not really knowing how to go about getting better. And pre-flop boot camp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in boot camp, what was your experience like? Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what rangers should look like and what hands should be played and what situations. You know, it was it was exciting because I. I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that, that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really helping uh, one another, kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was, uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post bootcamp? It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch up. Um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to, to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re really work together even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome. What's your sample size of winning post boot camp? I think I have 70,000 hands played by now. You know, I'm a father and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size. Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month. The price is $199, and your link to join is ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp, all one word, or you can click through in the description box of this episode. What, what were you feeling when, you know, this imminent, you have to deliver this news, imminently it's not going to be fun and then as you actually did it what were you what were your emotions like 
Um, I mean, I was angry that the timing of it, some of that personally, uh, just because of some things that were going on with my uh, immigration status at the time and my, my contract status with Churchill Downs. Um, but I was, I was angry that we weren't going to see to fruition some of the things we had planned. I was angry that uh, two of the, or yeah, two of the, two of the guys that I was delivering the news to had also moved to Atlanta. They'd sort of uprooted their lives and, and moved to Atlanta for the job. Um, and uh, there was, you know, poker media, there are not a lot of opportunities at that point. And so I was, I wasn't sure what I was telling them. I was telling them they didn't have a job with Bluff, but I wasn't able to promise them anything or direct them anywhere other than, uh, you know, get out there and, and see who's got what. And that was, that was really frustrating. Um, and it just, uh, to see those guys sort of, the work we put in that series was, was pretty good stuff. We were pretty proud of it. And then to see it basically being told like in three months, the website just won't actually bear any of that content anymore. Um, was pretty frustrating and uh, really disappointing way for it to, to end. Why did they let y'all cover the, the main that year? If they know they're shuttering it, like why, yeah, why, go, why pay the money? That's the thing that, that kind of uh, annoyed me because um, on a personal level, uh, my, the, visa, the work visa I was on uh, was expiring, I want to say August 15th. And I had asked them in June about the renewal because they were supposed to be taking care of it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're on top of it. And then I kept asking. And I think the third time I asked, I was like, you know, like, if you're not going to keep us around, which it kind of feels like, just let us know now rather than shipping us off to Vegas for uh, six weeks. And it was like, oh, no, 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 it's just a, it's a paperwork thing. And we were trying to work through some stuff. And uh, my instincts were just a little bit more developed than I think they're ready for. So being told uh, after putting in, you know, two weeks of 14 hour days and trying to get as much good content as we could, that it was all for naught was uh, kind Brutal. of, uh, that was the hard part of telling those guys, like all that work we just did was for like someone who didn't give a shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super brutal. And I can, I can certainly see why you were angry. And like you said, not many opportunities after bluff goes down because this was, this is post black Friday. How did you go about entering pocket fives? What was your next move? Like what were the next actions that you, you took? Um, so, I mean, word got out there on Twitter that, you know, um, we'd been let go and that bluff was shutting down, et cetera. And I had a lot of people reach out with, uh, you know, really kind words and said, if there's anything I can do to help, let me know. Uh, but one of the like very first DMS I got, uh, I think we came home on a Friday and I think I woke up Saturday to a DM from Adam small, the co-founder of pocket fives. And he said, Hey, you know, sorry to hear about what happened at bluff, but we might be looking for somebody to sort of run the site and run the business. Uh, we think you'd probably be a good fit. Let me know if you have a few minutes to chat, not wanting to appear overly eager. I gave it a couple of minutes and <laughs> him back. Uh, because they are, or uh, Adam at least was based here in Atlanta. And one of the things that was important for me at the time, my daughter was just starting elementary school and in a matter of days, she would be going on the bus for the first time. And we had really sort of fallen in love with the area we were in Atlanta. We'd made some friends here. And my wife and I talked about it, like, look, like there's different directions I can go with my career, but staying in Atlanta is uh, sort of a priority for us. Let's try and make that happen before we explore the stuff that requires us to move. 
And it was tricky because my visa was expiring. And so I would need a company to come along that would, uh, you know, sponsor me and uh, provide the, the, the legal ability to stay uh, on the visa. Is your wife Canadian as well? Yeah, but we're all, my wife, my daughter and I were all Canadian. So um, it was a matter of needing the visa if we wanted to stay. So talked to Adam and the role sounded like a good fit. It was uh, running the company from a business perspective and running the, the editorial as well. And uh, I've been here ever since. I'm super fortunate that they just happened to be looking for somebody at that point. Um, I can't thank Adam enough for uh, for reaching out that day. Um, and uh, I just feel that uh, I found a good fit at a time when I really didn't think I'd be looking for a job. Yeah. And it, I mean, it sounds like a great fit, actually. The business and the editorial side, both things in the poker space, things that you've kind of spent your career immersed in and learning and navigating and figuring out and thinking about. So kind of, uh, you know, very serendipitous opportunity right there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was, you know, 2015. We're now coming up on uh, five years, I think is the five-year anniversary officially, unofficially passed. But um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a wild ride these last five years. For sure. And um, you're the president and editor-in-chief of Pocket Fives, right? What is that have you worked your way up to that role? What does that mean? You're I mean, smiling. Why are you smiling? I, I, I'm, I'm smiling because it's the title you give somebody when you can't afford the salary that they were being paid before. Uh, <laughs> and like Adam and I laughed about it at the time. Like that's exactly what's happening here. And I understood it. Okay, it's fine. I, I get to stay in Atlanta. But uh, like the opportunity was so good. And the title was great. And like, let's go do this. Let's have some fun. Um, it basically means that like anything that needed to get done was on my shoulders. Um, we have some staff, uh, you know, Kev Math was with us for a while. Dan Cypher was with us for a while. Uh, Donnie Peters, Jeff Walsh, others along the way that, you know, uh, I get to lean on a little bit, but, um, they basically said, you know, here's the keys. Um, this is up to you. Please don't crash it. And, <laughs> no uh, sweat, uh, no pressure. I mean, uh, honestly, the opportunity at the time was like that. That's awesome. It's, uh, you know, combines a lot of things that I'm, I'm pretty passionate about, uh, which is, you know, good content a strong place in the, the poker community, a community within itself. The Pocket Fives community is a, is a good group. And, uh, and being able to sort of build a business, uh, a better business around it is, you know, it was a pretty exciting opportunity if I'm being really, really honest. For sure. I, I can imagine. It's exciting. Uh, you know, you're, you're tapping back into the Bodog days of growing something and building a business while also, you know, being an editor and still practicing journalism and all these things. So super appealing. You've written a book that I wanted to briefly touch on, or maybe not briefly. We'll see. I, I t- tend to be long-winded and ask a bunch of questions. Uh, Pursuit of Poker Success. Could you tell me about what led you to writing that book? Yeah. Uh, I mean, let's go all the way back to Ms. Stevens' class when I started telling people I was going to be an author. Um, I'd written a lot of content in the magazine and digital space, but had never uh, crossed that uh, the, the book thing off of my my to do list. And part of that was waiting for the right the right project. Uh, I bounced around a few. I talked to mainstream publishers in a pre Black Friday world about a few things, and they were uh, not uh, they weren't rejecting them, but they weren't bouncing off the walls to to jump on the opportunity. Then Black Friday happened and uh, it sort of changed that trajectory a little bit. They were no longer interested in anything poker. So it really was about like finding the right 
uh, opportunity uh, and the right projects and something that I, I thought would be great. And uh, I read Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss and really liked the idea of talking to people in a, uh, a longer form uh, conversation about one particular topic, very similar to what this podcast is. Um, and the, the idea was, let's find 50 really great poker players and find out uh, what it is that made them individually great. And as a group, what are the things that, uh, what are the similarities between these, these 50 people that are traits that you should develop or, or hope to, to look for? Uh, if you're really wanting to get to that uh, highest level of being a professional poker player, it's not a strategy book. No one wants to know how I play uh, pocket jacks from middle position because the answer is poorly. And it, that would be the end of the book. Um, so I wanted to get into the minds of, of people that were successful and find out what drove them to to the heights they were. What did you learn in writing that book? How was the experience? Um, I mean, I've, come to learn that a lot of people have write a book on their uh, life to-do list, their bucket list, I guess. Uh, and I, if that's the case, I highly recommend doing it. It will stretch you in ways that you can't possibly understand until you do it. Uh, it will stress you out in ways that you can't understand until you do it. Uh, but I think the, the thing I learned about myself was like, uh, if I really wanted to do uh, books, it was something I could do. Um, the experience itself was, like super long days at some points, whether that was days where I would have six interviews booked back to back to back. And these were, you know, two hour long interviews. Um, by the sixth one, I was making sure I wasn't jipping uh, that person of uh, a good version of an interview uh, or days where there was uh, the writing involved was just, you know, put headphones on, close the, the office door and get out as many words as I can and then work on revisions and work on getting it to the point where I was proud of it. Um, but what I learned from the group of 50, I think there's some, some things that maybe get overlooked in poker or, or were overlooked in poker. Of the 50, 48 told me that they wouldn't be where they are if it hadn't been for the fact they surrounded themselves with other like-minded individuals. And while the book makes that case for doing that in poker, like, you know, if you want to be a great poker player, uh, talk strategy, run through hands, learn from other poker players, that's your best bet is to build a solid group. Uh, of five or six people you really trust and really want to work with, maybe that think differently than you. Uh, and you can walk through your hands and, and ask questions that way. But I think that applies to anything you want to do in life. If you surround yourself with other people that are good at what you do, you're going to uh, develop at a much quicker pace than if you're trying to do it by yourself. And it's because you, we only have this one perspective, right? Like we only have our one life perspective and we get, we reach a point to where, you know, we get it caught in this, uh, like a mental feedback loop and we don't know how to progress. Like we just don't know what to do. And then somebody comes in with a different perspective and says something that makes you think about a thing that you've thought about a ton in a different way. Then all of a sudden it's like, holy shit. Now there's this whole other world that I need to go and explore. And like, you never get that opportunity by yourself because you never have any of these other perspectives. And yeah, like, Fedor Holtz has, you know, talked about one plus one equals five and, you know, growing exponentially by connecting yourself with certain people. And if there's a listener in the audience right now, that's wondering what they should do in their poker career, 
do that. Find people to give you a different perspective than the way that you currently think because it will be mind-blowing and the value and progress that you can make is just insane over such a, a sh- relatively short period of time. It's not an accident that a bunch of Germans got really good at poker at the same time. Yeah, it, it, they weren't just lucky that they all moved right. in together and like, oh shit, we're just the best in the world. Wow. And now we're seeing, you know, we've seen the same out of Brazil for the last three years. It's not an accident. It's, uh, these are people that are, are working uh, to improve their game and they're, they're doing it by asking questions of people that are going to give them an answer that maybe they don't even like. Uh, and that really challenges the way that you think about things. Yeah, it, they're poker factories, right? They're just like little poker factories that are churning out world-class talents over and over and over and over again. You've heard me talk early and often about how improving your awareness while you're playing cards so that you make better decisions in the moment and notice trouble spots that merit deeper consideration is one of the most valuable things you can do to make more money on the felt. In my conversation with the only four-time WPT main event champion ever, Darren Elias, he told me that his ability to shut out all of the distractions in the world and fully focus on making great decision after great decision is his superpower he most attributes to his success. And you cannot improve your awareness at the tables without being fully present. When you learn how to stay fully in the moment on the green felt, you can finally have a clear path to becoming the absolute best version of yourself, which leads me to Jason Sue. Jason is one of the foremost authorities on the planet when it comes to playing poker with presence. As a matter of fact, he even wrote the book on it. Here's a direct quote from Nick Howard at Poker Detox on Jason's ability to help you stay focused. Quote, Jason's work is a new paradigm in poker and performance. End quote. And these aren't just empty words. Nick has put his money where his mouth is by hiring Jason to coach up the Poker Detox crew. And as a loyal listener of Chasing Poker Greatness, you know by now that I would not be promoting anything I didn't 100% believe would improve your poker skills and your life. So if you want to master your emotions and perform at your peak with presence while doing battle in the arena, You'd be doing yourself a grave disservice if you didn't check out Jason's work at PokerWithPresence.com. One final time, that's PokerWithPresence.com. You mentioned in another interview your love of poker stories, and I'm assuming that that is a big driving force behind your career and probably even big driving force behind the book as well, right? Yeah. I mean, when I got to, I mean, at the poker biz, I had no restrictions. Like it was, I was paying for it. I could write whatever. But when I got to bluff and was given uh, the opportunity to write in the magazine, I took that probably a lot more seriously than I ever did the poker biz because uh, one, like someone was entrusting me to put my stuff in their product. So, you know, there was a little bit of, I felt like maybe some pressure to make sure that the stuff I was telling was good. And I've always uh, enjoyed, you know, I grew up reading like Sports Illustrated and that, and it was the longer form stuff in there that I really liked. And I wanted to make sure that when I was putting content out with my byline on it, that it wasn't shitty. Yeah. Uh, That I was putting out stuff that people would want to read and would seek out. And, you know, my favorite day of the year, I've said this a bunch of times, my favorite day of the year professionally is the first day of the main event. Uh, I walk into the Amazon room and there's 2000 stories waiting to be told. And I get to like pick if I'm lucky three of them. Uh, and so it, it, like, it's a, it's a target rich environment, man. It's uh, just walk up to a table and start talking to people and someone's going to tell you like, Oh, you know, we run this, 
this home game out of our, our HOA in uh, Alabama where we pay 10 bucks a week and over two years we save up 10K and the leader gets to come to me and you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> this thing for like $30? Okay, like we need to figure out exactly how this happened and who these people are that you play with. Stories like that are just, uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're there at the WS Community event. And poker itself is, is full of so many different levels of the type of player, but every one of them has like a ton of stories that need to be told. And getting the opportunity to tell uh, even, you know, five or six of them over the course of a summer is just, uh, I honestly consider it an, an honor and I take some responsibility and make sure that we, uh, we put out good content that, that, that gives players their proper due. Yeah, I mean that that that's amazing, and no favorite day of the year this year for you, obviously, because no, uh, <laughs> no favorite it, day. It's uh, um, yeah, it, it really hit me on what would have been day two of the main event this year that I was like, wow, this uh, this really, really, really sucks because there's you know we're, we're covering the main event online and the, the WSP stuff online, and it was it was fun to cover, but it was so different than being in that environment at the Rio, uh, as much as I dislike the Rio for how many hours I've spent there over the years, uh, I did miss it. Well, hang in there, Lance, it will come back around. And just like, you know, getting torpedoed in your previous jobs may have hurt at the moment. Um, maybe it has some positives down, down the line. I know that like when, as soon as live poker gets going again, there's going to be, it's going to be like elephants stampeding yeah. to join these things. I think the, the, whatever the next main event ends up being, I think is going to be a massive, massive turnout, provided that, you know, we're in a, a space where everybody feels safe traveling and whatnot, but yeah, yeah which I think is we're, questionable. We're some, some big fields and stuff. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, you know, I have some lightning round questions here. What's the most unexpected thing that's come from your poker journey? Um, wow. Most unexpected thing from my, my poker journey. I think the thing that, that surprises me the most is um, the number of friends that I've made in various places within this industry, whether that's other poker media members um, who at various points in my career, I may have looked up to. Um, and now I, I get to consider them colleagues and friends and uh, we get to talk on a regular basis, or that's people that work in the online industry or the live industry. And I get to consider, uh, consider them friends or uh, the players themselves. I've, made it a um, a goal of mine to not be overly friendly with players. And that's because I wanted to make sure that I was always able to cover them in a way that was uh, fair and honest to the reader. But ultimately I've spent so much time with some people that we've become friends. And I, I really value the fact that uh, I've carved out a place in this industry where I'm respected by uh, all of those groups, or at least I, I believe I'm respected by all of those groups. I hope I'm respected. <laughs> um and I think that's the, the thing that uh, I don't know if it surprises me, but uh, I, I'm glad it turned out the way that it did for sure. Yeah, for sure. And uh, like, we're all biased. We all have our own personal biases. When you interact with somebody, some, you know, you just like them. There's, you can't help it. It's just a thing that happens. Right. And like, you know, you were talking about writing your book and just the process of writing. And like, I write a daily, daily newsletter. It's very hard and time consuming for me. It actually takes me like one to two hours every single day. And like, uh, for those of you who may not know, this is some big brother shit, but like I can see people who opens the newsletter, right? I can see who my right. most frequent readers are. And like, I know that Matt Savage reads every single one that I send out. Like he's on there opening and reading every single one of them. And like, 
there's no chance that I can objectively cover anything Matt Savage does in the rest of his life. <laughs> just because I'm like, man, I like this guy. He's been on the show twice. He reads all my newsletters. Like that's just a, a relationship that came about through the podcast and is like, you just can't help but love these humans that you interact with and hear their stories. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the, the, I talked about sort of the responsibility to the reader. And if there's somebody that I'm, I'm covering or working with that uh, I would consider a friend or, or I'm friendly with, I think it's up to whoever's doing that, whether that's me or someone else in the industry yourself, you've just got to put those biases aside and, uh, and do your best to, to provide an honest look into what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, you have to be fair, right? Like it, it, you try to look at things objectively without letting the subjective creep in. Right. So where do you see this industry going moving forward? I mean, I think when we say this industry, we need to qualify what we mean by that because there's so many uh, sort of tentacles of this industry. What is like online poker is an industry unto itself. Live okay. poker is an industry unto itself. And yes, they have some overlap and they, they both definitely grow off of each other. Uh, I Let me clarify. Let me segment. Let me segment then. Let's go with poker news. First of all, like where do you see th- that industry going since that's a big part of what you do? The poker media side is interesting because uh, as a, you know, I, I think online poker regulation in the United States at the federal level is never coming. Um, and I mean, never as in never while I'm uh, breathing. It's a pipe dream at this point, but state by state at a, at a highly accepted level, I think there's a shot at that. Um, but what that means is uh, poker media sites need to figure out ways to monetize. And, you know, there's affiliate uh, business, there's ad business, you can do all of that, but we may need to get creative over the next few years and figure out ways to, to monetize if we want to continue to, to have uh, sort of a, a wider range of poker media sites out there. Um, and poker media itself is changing in that, you know, 10 years ago, it was all written. Everything was, was uh, written articles. Uh, podcasts became a thing. Video became a lot cheaper to, to produce and host. And now that's an important segment of the industry. So uh, it's, it's a matter of uh, poker media sites, figuring out what's next and being able to monetize that. Do you have any guesses, any clues? I mean, we're sort of revamping some of the things we do at Pocket Fives, just believing that uh, we need to be more in video and probably need to do more podcasts. We've got one now and we want to get a couple more off the ground in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. So uh, figuring out ways to balance the video, the podcasts and uh, strong written word uh, and making sure that you're attracting a large enough audience to convert if you're using affiliate traffic or to draw uh, decent ad rates if you're just going to do media buy type stuff. So for what's next, I don't know. Um, Shorter video stuff, maybe. I, I can tell you. I can tell you from my perspective. You know, when you're talking about forging your own path at the WSOP, that you're living on five dollars a day for your meals. I can tell you that running a podcast for say like nine or ten months, I got into it fairly naive without much of a business plan. I had a an affiliate business plan, and then it went to hell. And then I didn't really have a plan but I just enjoyed having these conversations and I enjoyed the relationships and telling the story. So I just kept doing it. And at some point I realized like, Brad, let's look at, let's take an honest look in the mirror here. Nobody's going to be sponsoring this show at any point in the near future. Like you're not going to, you're not going to be able to make a living through sponsorship because like even 
the sponsored pros I've learned on some of the bigger poker platforms, you know, they get paid in like free tournament entries. Woohoo. Like congratulations. Right. So doesn't pay the mortgage. Yeah. Platforms are not going to be, uh, not going to be diving in here to give you some revenue. So like, if you want to do this, you got to fucking make your own channel. You have to start making courses and you have to start selling to your audience. And like, that's the only way that you're going to get bailed out here with this project. Like if I want it to continue, I have to start generating revenue on my own by coaching, creating courses, webinars, uh, email funnels, learning Facebook ads and marketing and like wearing all self-promotion, wearing all these different hats at once because like it's my responsibility to save myself and my responsibility to save the, the show or so that it can continue going. And like, you know, I just you have to take matters into your own hands and figure it out, right? Like nobody's bailing us out. If poker were legalized and regulated on a federal level, there could be buckets of folks who are investing in adventures like this, but that's not the case. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I mean, we've mentioned black Friday and UIGA, like the way that that poker media sites have survived since then is like getting scrappy and that's going to continue. I think until, we get more than five states in the United States on board. Obviously, internationally, there's there's good opportunities. If you look at the, uh, I don't read a, a lick of Portuguese, but I do follow the Brazilian uh, poker sites because I think that it's just blowing up and it's really interesting to me. Um, they're doing just fine, thank you very much. And because they have uh, multiple revenue opportunities for uh, their national national environment. Yeah, I think it was, uh, there's a poker site. I think it's pokerstrategy.com. I read on Twitter just the other day that like in 2008, their yearly revenue was like a hundred million or something, which is they like smashing at the, at their peak. Yeah. A hundred million in revenue from like a poker media company just seems utterly absurd and bizarre in the year 2020. Yeah. I mean, they were one of the first sites to really sort of figure out a way to, to funnel uh, players through through multiple signups and, and really monetize a growing segment at that point. It was interesting. Yeah. It's a new case study for sure. For sure. Um, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about poker, as besides from the obvious of like federal regulation, what would it be? Man, that's a really good question. Uh, obviously, I think there's there's this belief and it's, it's, it's been around for probably since Black Friday that poker is struggling uh, and that, you know, and, everybody is expecting a second moneymaker like boom at some point. I don't know if that'll ever come. Um, but I'd like to get rid of the belief that poker is struggling uh, and sort of change the mindset of the community that uh, poker is doing quite well. And um, we've seen really good numbers at the world series the last couple of years, uh, live events in countries around the world are doing really well. Online is, was doing really well uh, pre COVID obviously uh, since the, the shutdown, it's, uh, exploded uh, in, in ways that no one could have ever planned for. But um, I think I would just change the mindset uh, to a little bit more thinking that poker's in a good place and how can we continue to build as opposed to trying to build from a place of not believing that, that poker's in a good spot. Because when you're building from a side of... Scarcity, of, right? It's like a scarcity yeah, belief. Exactly. Like people are thinking that, you know, like the, the, the numbers aren't good and poker's not growing. We need to change something. I think what we need to do is just promote more and build more around uh, some of the things we're seeing now. So tell I better, tell better of, stories. Like, 
build, yeah, build superstars. That's a big part of it, uh, whatever broadcast it is, if you're not getting the viewer at home invested in the people at the table at the time, uh, you're basically just running um, a pretty boring product. For sure. And that, that goes out to all of media. I remember yeah. there was a show on Netflix called Hyperdrive, and I really enjoyed it. It was a great show. And at first I was getting like a little annoyed because they would like tell the stories of all these drivers, like all the backstories and their hopes and their dreams. And, you know, I'm like, I just want to see them driving the car. But then as, uh, as the show went on, I, I started to realize like I'm rooting for these people because I know, I feel like I know them. I feel like I'm invested into their story. Right. And that's such a critical part of the process is feeling invested in these guys' journeys. If, if you don't have nine people at the table that every viewer is going to have some passing interest or knowledge of, uh, then you're, you need to tell those stories. The example I give always uh, is American Ninja Warrior. Um, no Not one either. on that show, bar one or two that they managed to get, is a household name. Um, all of them are fitness junkies, and they do a great job on that show of taking you to their home gym, showing them working out, showing you their kid, giving you a little bit of background. They were, uh, they were in the military or they work a nine to five or they're a single mom or whatever their story is. They give you a reason to cheer for them. And then they do their run and win or lose, you're invested. Uh, if, they, if they get to the end, you're fucking stoked for someone seven minutes ago you knew nothing about. Yep. And we need to do a much better job in poker of making sure that when Dave Solansky from Everett, Washington busts in sixth place from the main event, that people are sad that Dave busted. Yep. Not who's left. Yeah. hundred percent. And like the power of story, it's, it's so, so powerful. I remember, I don't even know what year this was, but I remember watching like some behind the scenes of John D'Agostino, who I don't even know where he's at or if he's still playing poker anymore, but like he was living in his house with his parents playing high stakes poker, like in another room. And I remember think like, it's stuck in my brain, this one little segment about this one guy that I haven't even thought about for 10 years. I remember that segment. That was either the U.S. Poker Championships out of the Taj or it was the Turning Stone event that they did live-ish, I think. I'm not sure, but I do remember that segment. Yeah, stuff like that. Um, it, it gives the the viewer uh, less reason to change the channel because suddenly they want to know how John's doing. Exactly. And more incentive to turn the channel on when John does well in the future. If you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be and why? Has there ever been a book written solely on bankroll management? I don't think so. I think that would then – then let me write that book and hand it out. Um, I think – I mean, my, my concern there is – and the reason why I, I jokingly say that is because I worry about hearing stories of people that are six or seven figures in makeup. Um, and I don't know how you ever get out of that other than a big score, which requires you to chase. And that's dangerous. I see people uh, playing over their heads in terms of the, the buy-in for the event they're playing in, for what they're bankrolled for. And I think that's, that's dangerous. But um, outside of that, I mean, Tools of Titans inspired me to, to write The Pursuit of Poker Success. And part of the reason was that there was little snippets throughout it that people from industries I'm not involved in, but I learned from, uh, a little bit at a time. And I think something like that, everybody would be able to to get through it and find something different that really applied to not just their poker game, but probably the way that they're, they're living their life. 
I'm glad that you mentioned Tools of Titans. It sits on my bookshelf, and I stole this next question from Tim Ferriss directly. Sorry, Tim. If you could erect a billboard, every poker player's got to drive past on the way to the casino, what would it say? Honor your debts. Well, why uh, does that matter to that's, you? If we're, we're talking about how to build poker and promote poker, um, and I think that's hard to do if the mainstream media can jump on something like uh, poker player owes $250,000. And that's a, a salacious headline that a mainstream outlet gets to cover, and it prevents them from covering something uh, a little bit more positive from our industry. And I think an industry that's got some hidden debt to it where some of the best players maybe owe other best players six or seven figures. I don't think that's a, a good look. And I think that's harmful, potentially harmful uh, to the long-term growth. And I, and I think it sucks that uh, there are people in our industry that will uh, run up a debt and then not pay it. We see it, we see it not all the time, but we do see it and we never see that person get uh, outed unless it's, it's someone that's done it to the extreme. And you know, there's the expression, if it bleeds, it reads. It's more compelling, gets more clicks if it's something along those lines. And, you know, one of the more tragic and horrifying stories of the last year in the poker world was Susie Zhao. And to see the way that the mainstream media, I mean, obviously it's horrible. It's, it's, I can't imagine a worse situation than that. And to, the narrative spun is was poker related somehow? Was this that a was ga- the first gambling debt that they put out there? Was we need to see if her her uh, her job had something to do with this? Yeah, which means that there's a total disconnect between like the actual world of poker and what the general population thinks of the world of poker, and like it's on us to improve that image. Yeah, it's almost as if uh, the like the very first thing after. And again, having read details of that case since the, the first press conference, um, the sheriff or police chief, whatever it was, walked up on that crime scene. And the first thing that came to his mind was, I wonder if she owed people money because she plays poker. Like, holy shit, how did you get there from what you're looking at? That's a crazy leap for somebody to make. Yep, it's insane. But, you know, it's uh, that's a stigma, right? That's sort of the people's internal narrative and how they think of poker. And like, when I think of poker, man, I think of, you know, Veronica just posted her GoFundMe and it, you know, speeds past the 20, 20K in 20, 24 hours and Perkins comes and like starts, you know, offers to help. And like, it, it's a community that really takes care of our own. We build people up. We're the most generous people that I've ever met in my life are members of this poker community. And like these stories don't always get told and they're just so important to me. And I have so much love in my heart for the folks that make up the world of poker that I wish more of the mainstream media and more of just your, you know, next door neighbor thought about poker in the same way that I do. Given the amount of space that the Sacramento Bee gave to covering the Mike Postle situation, uh, I was surprised to see that they didn't cover uh, Veronica's GoFundMe uh, being a success. But I, I mean... Uh, you're right in that uh, it bleeds, it leads, and it just didn't bleed there, right? So why cover it? Yeah, it's it, it's it's a shame, in my opinion. It's a real shame. So what's a project that you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? Yeah, um, we're, Jeff Walsh and I are, uh, he's a senior writer at Pocket Fives. We're doing our, our, our best to put together a, a content plan that's maybe a little bit different than what you've seen from Pocket Fives. 
we're exploring some different things. I mentioned uh, more podcasts, uh, some venturing into the video side of the uh, the business, um, and we want to make sure that the we're we're doing things a little bit differently. And uh, that's because I think there's outlets out there that are doing some great things right now, and I don't want to uh, copy that or run on top of that. Uh, we want to run parallel to that, doing things a little bit out of the norm for our industry. So uh, we're sort of uh, we started with a, a blank whiteboard and threw up a bunch of ideas and erased the ones we didn't think were going to work and uh, started to develop the ones we think were going to work. And over the next uh, six months, three to six months, I guess, we're going to be trying some different things and seeing how the the audience reacts. So you'll be notifying notifying folks when you roll out all this these new types of content? Uh, maybe. I think it may just find its way into our current content cycle and uh, without trying to uh, promoted or hype it up more than we would our, our existing content. We just want to see uh, what the, the market does to it in terms of uh, readership and how our audience can grow from it. Awesome, man. I can't wait to see what y'all come up with and telling good stories in different mediums and just ta- look, tackling things from different angles. I- I'm excited to see. Yeah, I'm excited too. It's uh, like, like I said, starting with a, uh, a blank whiteboard to develop uh, and having the ability to sort of go in whatever direction we want was a lot of fun. And now we just need to, to execute on it and get it out there and, and let the world uh, let us know if we were right or if we were dead, dead wrong. <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Uh, <laughs> luckily, the poker community, they're, they're never critical or negative about anything. So, Not at all, especially if you, you put out an opinion on uh, whether or not Phil Hermes is good at poker. No one ever jumps down your throat and tells you that uh, you're, you're crazy or wrong or silly, I think was the word. That yeah, a, a stoic bunch that that don't let their emotions show, Ever. especially on Twitter or social media or anywhere like social that. media. They're really good at, at, at <laughs> their, uh, hiding their, their their true thoughts and just, <laughs> for sure. Final question, Lance: Where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? Uh, you can find content on PocketFives.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at Lance underscore Bradley. And also, uh, if we're on a pod, let's promote the other one. Donnie Peters and I host the Fives Poker Podcast. Uh, we get together once a week, usually, uh, and just talk about the biggest issues in poker, the biggest headlines, and uh, dive deep into what's going on there. Awesome, man. Check out the Fives Poker Podcast. Lance, it's been joy, pleasure having you on the show. I've really enjoyed it. Let's do it again in you know six months or a year. Check back in, see how the content rollout went. Let's do it. Appreciate you having me on. See you, man. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.